This is the Return to Order Moment with Edwin Benson. Bringing you insights, analysis, and information for a culture in crisis. The Economy of Francesco and Other Dangerous Delusions In 2019, Pope Francis began discussing a set of ideas that have come to be referred to as the Economy of Francesco. Vatican News described it as a worldwide movement of young people who aim to change the current economic models and craft a future that is more inclusive and just. As the idea has taken shape over the last two years, one aspect of it is becoming increasingly apparent. Throughout the discussion, there is little, if any, discussion of the supernatural power of God or of humanity's need to rely upon Him as the source of all that is good. While such omissions are commonplace in economic plans drafted by governments and other secular organizations, they are startling when they are inspired, indeed even named after, the world's best-known religious leader. So John Horvat asked the important question, why is God missing in the economy of Francesco? The economy of Francesco is the name of an initiative of Pope Francis in which he invites, quote, young economists, entrepreneurs, and changemakers of the world, unquote, to address the world's economic problems. The project seeks to be an explosive source of energy and new ideas for a tired world in need of change. The primary vehicle for communicating this message is a multilingual website of the same name that presents the results of listening to peoples and hearts to construct a better world. Occasional online events and videos also populate the site and give the appearance of youthful exuberance. However, not all that glitters is gold. Looking beneath the surface of the project reveals old and familiar errors. While the stated goals might seem laudable, the underlying ideology is questionable. Everything on the site would appear much fresher if its recycled ideas were not so stale. The economy of Francesco is like wading through a confusing mixture that seems to be a jumble of UN Commission reports, Laudato Si ecological manifestos, Green New Deal activism, and Amazon Synod tribal boilerplate. Like most of Pope Francis's quote unquote listening projects, this one only takes notice of what he wants to hear. The core of the economy of Francesco is found in a message made, quote, in the name of the young people and poor of the world, unquote. While the website is made to appear useful, it has a childish overtone and reads like Greta Thunberg. The introductory message on the site calls for change with the same deliberate and urgent tone, quote, our times are too difficult to ask for anything but the impossible, unquote. However, the appeal delivers what seems to be the impossible, a Vatican-inspired message that contains nothing identifying it as Catholic or even religious. Indeed, nowhere in the nearly 900-word appeal do the words God, Jesus, Mary, or Catholic appear. Sin and vice are also not mentioned. The document is not even directed to church members, but to, quote, economists, entrepreneurs, political decision makers, workers, and citizens of the world, unquote. The project is all about humanity and nothing about divinity. 
It is so willing to be inclusive, yet excludes God from the solution to the world's problems. The materialist aspect is especially apparent since the project's sole focus is building a better world through the economy. The project is divided into 12 villages, which are work groups that discuss specific themes. The 12 themes of the villages are management and gift, finance and humanity, work and care, agriculture and justice, CO2 of inequality, vocation and profit, business and peace, women for economy, energy and poverty, business in transition, life and lifestyle, and finally, policies and happiness. The village themes highlight some legitimate areas of concern. However, the language employed to express them reflects the secularist, ecological, socialist, and woke schemes. To describe the project more accurately, perhaps it would be better to consolidate the twelve villages into four collectives with themes that better reflect the egalitarian reality of their proposals. Thus, the first collective might highlight the theme of class struggle and equality. A constantly recurring theme of the economy of Francesco is the division of the world into rich and poor or conflicts generated by identity politics. Instead of harmonizing society, this collective seeks to highlight class struggle as a means of realizing social justice. Thus, the inequality of nations is emphasized by the demand that advanced technologies be shared with low-income countries. Such technologies will be used to reach quote-unquote sustainable production and quote-unquote climate justice. The project also criticizes economic ideologies that quote, offend and reject the poor, the sick, minorities, and disadvantaged people of all kinds, unquote. The unnamed offender is not communism, but those who seek profit in their labors. It further calls upon, quote, economic organizations and civil institutions not to rest until female workers have the same opportunities as male workers, unquote. Everywhere there is the constant call to equality. The emphasis implies that just and ordered inequalities that God desires, such as those based on talent, intellect, effort, and so forth, are illegitimate and unnecessary for human progress. Indeed, these legitimate inequalities are condemned as not conducive to creating, quote, authentically human and happy places, unquote. The Collective for Ecology and Sustainability promotes a new ecological dictatorship that seeks to orient all things toward earth worship. Thus, there is a demand for stewardship of common goods, especially the areas of, quote, the atmosphere, forests, oceans, land, natural resources, all ecosystems, biodiversity, and seeds, unquote. These topics are at the center of concerns for achieving, quote, unquote, climate justice. The economy of Francesco calls on national and international institutions 
to promote and even provide prizes to those who can best bring about, quote, environmental, social, spiritual, and not least managerial sustainability, unquote, that will make possible, quote, global sustainability of the economy, unquote. The goals and plans of the Collective for Socialism and Global Regulation go beyond mere suggestions. Socialism engenders regulation and executive action. Like all socialist master plans, this collective imagines laws, charters, and global treaties to enforce the good intentions of the project's authors. Thus, there are calls for social policies, quote, recognized worldwide by an agreed charter that discourages business choices based solely on profit, unquote. A new global tax must be made to abolish immediately tax havens, which steal from, quote, the present and the future, unquote. There is no mention of eliminating communism. New financial institutions and existing ones like the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund must, quote, be reformed in a democratic and inclusive sense to help the world recover from poverty and imbalances produced by the pandemic, unquote. Big companies and banks should, quote, introduce independent ethics committees in their governance with a veto on the environment, justice, and the impact upon the poorest, unquote. The last collective would call for the abolition of war and the establishment of peace. It rounds out the economy of Francesco's set of demands, quote, we young people can no longer tolerate resources being taken away from schools, health care, our present and our future to build weapons and fuel the wars needed to sell them. Unquote. War is seen from the Marxist materialist perspective of systemic causes. Inequality, poverty, and economic vulnerability endanger peace. War is never just. War is not, quote, the wages of sin, unquote, fallen nature, or evil ideologies like communism. Thus, free markets are labeled unbalanced and seen as sources of conflict, while more egalitarian social structures foster peace. Social and environmental sustainability will usher in peace and eliminate war forever. The economy of Francesco is a project without a soul. It is a collection of catchphrases taken from ecology, socialism, and woke politics. The website reflects a forced enthusiasm that characterizes modern-day youth activities proposed by the progressivist post-Second Vatican Council Church. And behind the appearance of youthful exuberance are the tired Marxist and ecological errors of times past and present. Such projects are shallow and unattractive because they are not centered on eternal goals. There is no call for a return to personal virtue and sanctity or to combat sin and vice. The economy of Francesco's initial appeal does not invoke God or seek the aid of His grace. 
The result is a bland appeal to an egalitarian material existence. The project's young promoters are asked to commit, quote, to living the best years of our energy and intelligence so that the economy of Francesco can increasingly bring salt and leaven to everyone's economy, unquote. Such an appeal is contrary to the Church's traditional call to holiness. In times when the principles of the gospel informed society, Christendom's hearts and minds were turned to the sublime spirit of the way of the cross. It permeated economy, art, and thought, and gave value, meaning, and beauty to all things human. Thus, a way of the cross economy found expression in the sacrifices and restraint linked to supplying human economic needs. Humanity will never find peace, the tranquility of order, until it returns to God, the center of all things. It must obey once more the divine counsel. Seek ye therefore first the kingdom of God and his justice, and all these things shall be added unto you. See Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. A common element that supporters of the economy of Francesco emphasize is that of compassion. However, this compassion is not pity for those who have done their best and still fallen victim to misfortune. It is rather an excuse for those who never take individual responsibility for their attitudes and actions. We often see this perspective among those who call themselves homeless activists. To them, society owes a dignified life to those who suffer poverty through their own irresponsible acts. Such pseudo-compassion is hopelessly short-sighted and futile. Mr. Edwin Benson discusses this fact in his essay, Misguided Compassion Hurts the Homeless, and the Rest of Us Too. Two things are evident about how homelessness is addressed in America today. The problem is growing, and the present remedies are not working. The failure does not come from a lack of will since many Americans feel compassion for the homeless. Our Lord's parable of the Good Samaritan, see Luke chapter 10, verses 30 to 35, shows the Christian way to help those in need. The problem is much more a political problem than an economic one. The media specialize in using naturally charitable impulses for political ends. The left's misguided compassion hurts the homeless and all of society. The homeless issue is once again coming to the fore, albeit in a very different context. In the 80s, the common question was comparative. The press expressed it in words like, Why are so many people homeless in the wealthiest nation in the world? Liberals believed that the answer was bureaucratic. Cities and counties built shelters, largely funded by grants from the federal government. Religious bureaucracies, notably Catholic charities, endowed food pantries staffed by closely monitored volunteers. Since drug abuse and mental disease issues were so much a part of the homeless issue, health departments established free clinics and needle exchange programs. Using grants from well-established community organizations, advocates set up shop to help the poor and homeless navigate the welfare system. Mayors unofficially passed the word to chiefs of police that, quote-unquote, 
victimless crimes like panhandling, public intoxication, loitering, and so on should be lightly enforced, if at all. Forty years later, the question is one of effectiveness. Why are there still so many homeless people? Like many impulses, even those inclined toward virtue, compassion gets swept up into waves of emotion. Webster's definition is straightforward. Systematic consciousness of others' distress, together with a desire to alleviate it. Yet the crucial question is not helping, but the best way to help. A recent article by journalist Christopher Rufo has some excellent insights as to why past efforts failed. He looked at West Coast cities like San Francisco, Los Angeles, and Seattle. In fact, one-third of the U.S. homeless population lives in three states, California, Oregon, and Washington. Mr. Rufo dismantles many of the common assumptions about homelessness. He shows, for example, that homelessness is not caused by landlords who charge high rents. Indeed, Mr. Rufo found little difference between rental rates in the five cities where homelessness has increased and 20 other cities of the nation's 25 largest cities where homelessness has decreased. Another easy answer is that the homeless tend to relocate to warmer climates. Here again, facts do not bear out this analysis. Miami and Tampa are as warm as Los Angeles. One could argue that the homeless prefer the less humid West. However, Riverside, California, 54 miles from Los Angeles, has fewer homeless than it did 10 years ago. The key to understanding the homeless problem is by looking toward the city of Houston, Texas. Mr. Rufo elaborates, quote, Houston's policy exemplifies what Mayor Sylvester Turner calls a tough love approach. The city has built permanent supportive housing, cobbled together a coalition of nonprofit partners, and lobbied the state government for more mental health and addiction services. At the same time, Turner has enforced a strict ban on public camping and proposed a citywide campaign to discourage citizens from giving money to panhandlers. The results have been stunning. Between 2011 and 2019, Houston reduced its homeless population by 54%, unquote. Mr. Rufo has swerved into a fundamental truth. The homeless locate in cities that indulge them. Any society falls apart unless there is an authority that holds it together. Leniency breeds chaos. Misdirected compassion is not compassion at all, but chaos in which everyone suffers. As Russell Kirk states, order is the first need of the soul, unquote. The same necessity of order can be affirmed about society. It is also the first need of the nation, lest society decay into chaos. Freedom, justice, law, and virtue are all very important. But order is the first and most basic need. Any effort to help the homeless must address the basic need for a moral order from which everything else will follow. Another misguided attribute of the economy of Francesco is the implicit denial of the right to own private property. 
Most Americans hold their possessions very dear and resist any attempt to take them away. We also admire those who work diligently to provide for their children. Yet, in a peculiar way, we are far less protective of the rights of children who eventually inherit the fruits of their parents' labor. Politicians see this contradiction and take advantage of it by passing death taxes, which usually bear the far more attractive name estate taxes. A newcomer to the return to order moment, Mr. Thomas Villalobos, examined the threat of these taxes when he wrote The Biden Death Tax, an attack on the ideas America holds dear. The death tax provision of President Biden's American Families Plan not only financially punishes people receiving inherited assets, but also attacks the values of tradition, family, and property. By turning deaths and gifts into mere transactions, the Biden administration displays an alarming disregard for protecting American families and their property. Additionally, these new legal proposals would radically break from the traditional pattern of taxation based on capital gains. This most recent attack seeks to expand education, child care, and other efforts to fight poverty using funds that would come partly through increased death taxes. The main charge is that taxation will be based on a new carryover policy rather than the present step-up policy. The new policy turns death, and thus the giving of inheritance, into a transaction. Therefore, the current capital gains tax on inheritances at death is the difference between the value at the time of transfer and whatever appreciation of value has occurred if sold more than a year after the transfer. The new carryover rule would push back the initial point of taxation from the time of transfer to when the initial investing was done. For example, if someone invests $150,000 at the beginning of his lifelong career, that investment might be worth, say, $3 million at the time of his death. Under today's rules, his four inheritors do not pay any capital gains taxes on that gain at death. Under the new Biden administration's plan, each inheritor's share of $750,000 would be subject to a 20% tax, which comes to $150,000 per heir. Furthermore, if an heir receives an amount that increases his adjusted gross income past $1 million, additional taxes kick in at a total rate of 43.4% on the income. Such cases are especially burdensome on farmers and small business owners. Heavier taxes could also significantly hurt businesses and farms inherited during a time of poor profitability. In the context of tradition, America has long resisted death tax proposals. The new Biden tax proposal on estate transactions is a further step forward in a series of historic government encroachments on the patrimony of American families. In 1797, Congress imposed a stamp tax on the execution of all wills. The revenue went toward building up the U.S. Navy in preparation for the raging Caribbean naval conflict, dubbed the Quasi War. Congress repealed the tax in 1802. The Revenue Act of 1862 revived the death tax for the Civil War, and Congress again repealed it 
by 1872. The same process repeated itself for the Spanish-American War. In 1913, a permanent estate tax became possible with the ratification of the 16th Amendment. The text of the amendment reads that, quote, The Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived, without apportionment among the several states, and without regard to any census or enumeration, unquote. This empowered Congress to pass the United States Revenue Act of 1916, which permanently established the federal estate tax upon the death of property owners. No longer a matter of national emergency, the estate tax takes a cut out of the fruits of one's labors after death. In 2012, the American Tax Relief Act entrenched the estate tax in the tax code, which causes difficulties for lawmakers if they try to remove it. The Biden death tax proposal further harms families by turning death into a cold bureaucratic transaction. Although piling federal and state capital gains taxes on top of current estate taxes may seem like an economic matter, Transferring material goods can be meaningful expressions of affection. They can be a final way of saying goodbye between dying parents and their children. By turning death into a transaction, the state shows disregard for the grave and sacred notions of death. As John Horvat notes, the new tax proposals represent a vain effort to support a wide range of individuals at the expense of the families they claim to defend. The tax plan attacks property by serving as a tool to harvest money from all those who have succeeded in life, from upper-middle-class Americans to billionaires. This egalitarian and anti-property aspect financially penalizes well-off and stable families to fund the misguided and anti-family initiatives within the plan. It will punish the better off to address what is mainly a moral crisis. The taxes would also punish the hardworking and financially careful families that make wise investments that appreciate over time. The new death tax proposals are radically socialist encroachments on tradition, family, and property. This concludes The Economy of Francesco and Other Dangerous Delusions. Thank you so much for listening. Return to Order, of which this podcast is only a part, strives to be a source of light in a dark and disordered world. Your prayers are appreciated. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we ask you to subscribe and give us a five-star rating with the service through which you are listening to it. Increased subscriptions and high ratings mean that more people will be directed to the Return to Order moment when searching for new podcasts. So, by rating us, you could help Return to Order be more effective. In addition, subscribers gain access to all the previous episodes of the Return to Order moment. We would also like to recommend the book, which spells out our motivations behind our work. Mr. John Horvat's book, Return to Order, is available as a free download through our website, www.returntoorder.org, or in printed and recorded form through our bookstore. All rights are reserved. Copyright 2021 by the American Society for the Defense of Tradition, Family, and Property, TFT.